Hey friends, did you miss us? We have been busy. And don't you worry, we've got content coming for you. And today's show is the beginning of that. And it's a, a tough show. It's a sensitive show. We realize that. We're going to be talking about birth control, abortion, a real hot topic these days. And we're going to look at it all from the perspective of a radical thinker and figure in uh, early 20th century America, and that is Emma Goldman, the anarchist, uh, really interesting character, a fascinating life. We're going to talk a little bit about how her life and her movement really relates to generally the liberation of women and the reproductive uh, autonomy within America. That's what's in store for you. Stick with us. It's a, it's a nuanced topic. I think we'll be able to shed at least a little bit more light on it for you. So glad you're with us. Let's go. we've been real busy. We've been real busy not doing podcasting, but we've been getting <laughs> jobs. Jobs. Yeah. We said after 4th of July, we'll just decide to become people at that point. Crawl out of our hole or our cave or whatever it is and try to get ourselves out there again. Um, you know, as we are trying to recover from what, uh, uh, what feels like um, a whole life redirection of yeah. all kinds and stuff that, you know. Grief. A new move, new life, new center of gravity. Mm -hmm. And it's liberating, it's freeing, but it's also kind of scary. So, for instance... No, well, and change, for me, is hard, <laughs> yes. right? And I think, Any kind of change. I think I've been, um, you know, basically been confronted with nothing but change. <laughs> yes, sorry about that. <laughs> for the last, I don't know, I, I guess, like... 10 months or something, you know, and really, and, and more because yeah. we had decided uh, around this time last year to make some big moves in our lives yeah. and we did, but it was under, you know, different circumstances. Uh, so again, good stuff. So change is always hard. Um, you know, but I feel like there's also, there's growth with that too. Yeah. And so it's not, you know, it's, there's definitely, you know, another positive side to it where I definitely feel like, uh, kind of branching out and becoming my own person again. Like, yeah. I don't know. Not, you know, I don't know. It's just, and it's inspiring. Like yeah. I like it. I remember, you know, Sydney was remarking the other day as we were sitting around that even though she lives with a kind of basic, you know, grief or, or spiritual amputation within her, she is working towards becoming a, a better person, right. you know, a, a person, a, a person that has autonomy and having to kind of figure out who you are, not just in terms of your relationships, but just, you know, who you are has been helpful, even though painful. Well, and especially because when you're confronted with your world being able to be completely like changed just instantly, uh, then you have, you know, that's something to confront. And there's a way in which you can just maybe sometimes hunker down in, in fear and, you know, and, and struggle with the inconstancy of life, I guess. Yeah. Is, that, is that a word? Inconstancy? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, Transitory nature of yes. all things. Yeah. Um, or, you know, and so there's a part of it where you could just, you know, again, cower down or there's the piece of it where you can say, okay, well, that's, I guess, one thing I 
do know for sure and then face whatever fears, um, you know, there are to face and then just trying to figure out, you know, how, you know, like how, yeah, how are we going to become people? Anyway, so we've been doing jobs and, you know, and, and, and figuring out what it is to sort of settle in our, our new hometown. And mm-hmm. part of what I'm excited about is the opportunity to be uh, outside and working with people to meet new people and and establish new relationships and, and friendships and stuff. So. And you're going to be managing a, a wellness center where there is uh, all sorts of healing going on. That's really cool. And, uh, you know, of course, I'm starting my school teaching in September. But in the meantime, I got a job as a server at a sushi place, mainly because I like sushi. I kind of want to get into uh, the industry so that I have that safety net. I've never really had that where, mm-hmm. okay, if this doesn't work out, I could always just make tips right? Um, or something, you know, like what can I just jump right into tomorrow? And it's been scary. You know, I'm <laughs> normally not in that like vulnerability, uh, that, that feeling of incompetency, you know, right. there's these it's teenagers, a whole new world, right? they know how to put in the orders and I'm confused. And as you, as you came home, the first thing you're like, this is not an old man's uh, game, <laughs> game or whatever, yeah. right? It's, it's a little like, tiring standing <laughs> up on your feet, but I love it. And it's, you stay active and it's it, humbling. Mm-hmm. I get to, to get to interact with the cooks and well, the chef and you know and when i mentioned to, when i mentioned to my folks about you getting this job you know when my parents were like yeah like like jeff is so entertaining like i would love for him to be you know be there you know that's kind w- of them. well i have my restaurant experience or whatever it's like it won't be a dull moment right i think that part of this relates to our overall theme of free you know full spectrum emancipation and getting free partly is having options. I never really conceived Mm -hmm. over the last 20 years of teaching that I could survive, and we'll see how it goes, I could survive financially by stepping out of what I had done. And so sometimes feeling like you have no other options and you're you're locked in. It's horrifying. I mean, there's like a deep sense of being trapped and, and not, yeah, like when you feel like you have no options, there's like, there, it's a very, very dark space to be in. And so being able to pull ourselves out of that, finding mm-hmm. these new outlets, finding these new things and realizing, wait a minute, <laughs> there's a whole other pieces of this world that are now accessible that uh, I never really thought were options. Sydney's not with us. She's off uh, also at a sushi place, but she's working at a different sushi place. We're going to try to figure out the best one and then try to snag <laughs> each other over. And then she's also uh, going to turn those moments of, of kind of restless grief into service. And so I remember one time she said, I guess maybe I will actually become Guan Yin, like we joke about, in terms of the, the historic uh, Miao Shan story or the legendary Miao Shan story about um, the incarnation, essentially, of, of Guan Yin in this young woman serving people that are suffering. She is taking care of the sick, seeing their pain and being with them, you know, she's going to be working with people who are uh, elderly and need, you know, very direct care. And so even though it's going to be a tough thing for her to do, I think, you know, she was saying that that's a nice way to to deal with grief, just to kind of get active in ways that you're seeing um, how you can help other people that are suffering. Yeah, she wanted to find a job that was meaningful. And to her, she was like, this is I can make a difference Mm -hmm. here. I can be somebody coming alongside and helping them, you know, during their, their time when so many times I think, unfortunately we do, um, kind of neglect some of our elders. We've seen that, right? Like, yeah, I mean, even the pay that people often want to give the people that are actually doing all of the, the elder care is 
crazy to me. And that job and then your new job, I think, are going to be very nice ways to kind of plug in to the local community and to build the parts of your life and business related to death doula work and so yes. forth. Uh, stuff that you want to do, but you know, uh, this will give us some community connections yeah, and, and a little bit of income. Meaningful work. Now, when you go to this, you're talking about, uh, let's go back to our subject now, change, feeling trapped, hmm. um, all of these things. Hmm. One of the ways that a person can really have their lives uh, transformed, of course, is death to somebody that mm-hmm. is close to you, but also birth, pregnancy, right? I mean, yeah. being pregnant or being a partner with somebody who's pregnant when you're not expecting it or, or don't really have the money for it or the time or you're just not ready or you're in a dangerous situation uh, relationship-wise is a, is a frightening feeling also. Yeah. And the idea that there is a societal, political, and then religious aspect to reproduction and birth, uh, birth control and all of that really complicates it because you throw in, you know, your own life panic. Mm-hmm. And... And then you, then you add to it shame and fear related to God and religion. It, it's, a, it's a volatile mix. It's a, it's, a, it's a potent mix. So I want to just kind of go through a little bit about abortion first and then and, and birth control and, and the history of it and what it means for feminism, for liberation, but also just for politics in American society. And I want to talk then, uh, after kind of briefly mentioning that stuff, move into how it all kind of got moving in America, not through somebody that most people think of when they think about, say, uh, Planned Parenthood or uh, reproductive rights in America. They, they tend to think about a woman named Margaret Sanger. But instead of Margaret Sanger, I want to focus on Emma Goldman, because I think there are, are ways in which she may be more helpful for framing the conversation. And, and her life is kind of interesting uh, and I'll get to that in a moment, but her life helps us to understand why this would have been important to her because of her own sexual traumas and her own inability to kind of plug into society without being a breeder wife. <laughs> so we'll yeah. get to that in a second. But just to step back, let's think about why is, a, why is abortion right now such a big deal for Christian nationalists, conservative Christians in general? What, what's going on? Because um, it all... It's important for those of you who aren't really aware of how it all fits together, I think it's important to see it. For us growing up in evangelicalism, we saw it purely, I think, as a moral crusade. There is this secular world that's killing babies. Yeah. And we, as young evangelicals, were, if any, anywhere else, we were activists on this issue. We didn't do too much of it, but there were times that I did, going back well, to 1986. You had a whole song related to it. Um. I will play one clip, <laughs> but it is very cringeworthy, and I'm not playing it to, uh, to like, you know, re-traumatize you or something, if this is something that you don't want to hear. But just to kind of say, this is what we were thinking about. This yeah. is how we were thinking about it. Just give you a clip real fast.
says, so forgive the me. line, you know, that your friends were killed as far as Yeah, as I was I born in 73, yeah. the Roe v. Wade atrocity. I mean, that was yeah. that was how I saw it. And I... And, and I mean, obviously the, you know, you mentioned like the, with the moral piece and, and you know, wanting life, wanting, you know, wanting to say that life should have a way, you know, that, yeah. that you know, if, I guess the thing I'm, I, I guess I'm kind of like seeing now is even understanding, um, you know, quality versus quantity of life is a huge piece. That was not something we tended to and discuss. And we didn't discuss that. Um, but, you know, we're not like, it's not like you want like to go and think of like all these like babies getting killed, right? That's no. sad. Like no. that's terrible. And listen, in our family, we're kind of vegan-ish. We're vegan adjacent. I do think that there are some possibilities about using grasshoppers uh, to feed the world instead of steaks. Uh, I, I love oysters. I think honey's pretty cool, you know. But generally speaking, even there, we we love bees. We love beans. We don't like wasting plants. Right. We don't like wasting the leaves on the broccoli. So if you want to talk about life, <laughs> we believe that broccoli is beautiful and worthy of care. Well, and, and even life. in the cabbage that bolted, right? And like taking those cabbage leaves and still putting them to use because, you know, the garden took so much effort to to grow it and then, you know, just to have it go to waste seems so sad. And so we, you found like a delicious recipe to use mm-hmm. for these cabbage leaves. And it almost reminded mm-hmm. me a little bit of like a, like grape leaves with a nice filling in it. Anyway. So li- listener, you're probably thinking, oh, are you comparing, uh, you know, fetuses to, to plants? <laughs> no. Were, were you, but no, but yeah, actually in a sense that I'm saying, I want to elevate our respect for plants and trees. So I don't want to devalue, uh, you know, infants, uh, even in infants with disabilities, I don't want to devalue even any part of us, the fetus, whatever. Um, so, so I think that if we, we need to honor in this conversation, we should honor those sensitive people who really do uh, see this not through politics or the control of a woman's body, but just through their general sense of love and compassion on all Beings. Sentient beings, yeah, yeah. and uh, and even you know like some uh, secular ethicists um, from a utilitarian perspective, um, you know, might emphasize the question of pain. Mm-hmm. Right? Does a fetus feel pain? When does a fetus feel pain? And and then if they're born, how much pain are they going to face then? You know, these mm-hmm. are questions that are, I think, better ways to frame this. Um, in the sense that if you're compassionate, let's just talk about compassion. Let's mm-hmm. talk about love. Let's talk about not rules so much, but virtues. And one of those virtues is we should uh, be loving towards all beings. Yeah. And I wish that was the focus of this whole thing that's coming in the up public here. square in the public square. But again, I want to grant that some people mm-hmm. are approaching it and that really is where they're coming from. And so for you, if that's what you're at after, if that's where you're at, I get it because, you know, sometimes people, whether, you know, it might be Buddhists. Uh, they get so deep into their awareness of the unity of all things that they don't even want to eat fish. Mm-hmm. So, so there is a way in which I think that's a heavy, that's a heavy emphasis. We also were at the farm, which was like a hippie commune, you know, in Tennessee, mm-hmm. we've talked about it on the show. They were pro-life in the sense that not so much they wanted to control people politically, but they wanted to provide a space for moms who wanted to have their babies to not live in destitution. Right. Okay. Good, good, good. All right. Um, but that's not the full story. Now, if you went back into the 70s when Roe v. Wade 
came onto the scene. Abortion as such, let's just talk about abortion for a second. Abortion as such was not really seen as a big deal. The, the, the magazine, Christianity Today, conservative evangelical magazine in the early days was pretty cool with abortion. And it's just surprising that that it would be the surprising. case. It is surprising. I didn't even know the that. The Southern Baptist Church, also pretty cool with abortion, because part of what they were after was indeed a kind of white nationalist eugenics. You've got all these people of color. You've got immigrants. You've got former slaves. And they, uh, many of these people, many of these Christians, white nationalist Christians, and uh, just racist Christians in general, thought of abortion as a way to control the population of unwanted, dark-skinned people. Hmm. Um, the, um, the, the, the interesting thing around this time is that there was an overlap um, between kind of Amer- America firsters, conservative, anti-immigrant sentiments, and, and abortion, again, because they're saying, here are all these middle-class white families increasingly having fewer babies, but the Catholics... Italians, I say it, Italians and uh, and Irish and Mexican and and uh, you know just people from uh, Eastern Europe or whatever, people that are coming from a more traditional background, having you know these peasant families in the sense of you're supposed to have a lot of babies so that you have people to help work on the farm. Um, they're coming into affluent urban situations like you know Philadelphia and Manhattan, and in that sense. There's just too many people. Mm. In one sense, it's too many people, too many people that you don't really want around. So uh, the fact is, in evangelicalism, at some point, there there was at least a strand of evangelicalism that was kind of racist related to it. And a couple things happened. One, people started to realize, wait a minute, along with the birth control pill, abortion allows for a certain kind of freedom and autonomy for middle-class wives, who could have affairs without getting caught? <laughs> Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, or they could um, they could have their own like uh, autonomy without having to be barefoot and pregnant. So let's not even just think about affairs. If a mom says, "I don't want to just have eight babies and just be consigned to that," maybe they want to live a socialite life. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so so. But there, it is it is that. interesting that that interest or that concern for promiscuity because yes, I th- I've. <clears throat> encountered that uh even when you were writing your book sexy there was um some Which backlash we, by the way we're, we're gonna have to come back to that at some point we will i'm gonna have some retractions you know i still stand by a lot of but the mystical stuff but yeah there was a backlash about you mentioning the hpv vaccine well there was a preemptive non-backlash to the extent that within the conversation a lot of people did not want me to go there now there's like there's an element of conservative christianity that's just anti-vaccine mm-hmm. but in this case i mean i was just shocked um, that people were so against Christian parents getting their kids the HPV vaccine. Do you know why they didn't want it? Well, I believe it was because they thought that that would then give them permission yep. to have sex before marriage. Every time I talked about it, that's what or, people said. Or um, even almost like even if it, it's like it, that sort of uh, virus spreads. The human papillomavirus. When you have multiple partners and sex like, you know, multiple partner sex. So like if you're, if it's just one person, you know, two people that come together and they've never had any other sexual contact, then it's very unlikely that they would contract the HPV. Right. Right. But it does lead to cervical cancer. So this is a problem. The unfortunate piece is if I'm looking at even all of the women that I know, they often had their first sexual encounter 
um, not by choice. Through coercion, manipulation, could be sexual assault. Point being, this is what I was just almost trying to shout from the rooftops at the time to Christian parents and to churches, that you need to reframe all of these conversations about birth control and safe sex and all this, not in terms of your autonomous daughter making free decisions. And this is not because they shouldn't be able to do that, but because society and their training did not provide enough equipment for that. And then on top of that, the rape culture within both Christianity and and society in general leads to a very large number of young women having sexual encounters that they didn't want. That has to be a part of it. So if you're thinking, oh, we need to make sure we don't have abortion or other forms of birth control because we don't want teenage girls to be able to just go out and, and be promiscuous, that's... That's not necessarily how I was, how I've been seeing this, having taught for so long and having heard so many troubling stories. We're talking about incest. We're talking about, we're talking about rape, but we're also talking about uh, youth pastors just making the people think that it was their decision to be in a relationship. Hmm. Um, I mean, this is what we've seen. So the Southern Baptist church has this, all these youth pastors that were sexually uh, exploitative Mm-hmm. So what do you do for that? You know, right. and the idea, and I've heard people say it explicitly that, um, that they want the threat of cervical cancer to prevent their daughters from being, uh, out there dating people that are not approved by dad and, uh, and being promiscuous. I think that's just disgusting. It's horrible, but it's very, because it was it's, very it's common. So sad for all of the girls involved. I just, I mean, my heart just breaks. Well, come on. Yeah. You know, like cervical cancer that could be completely preventable Yeah, to teach your daughter a lesson. And and alongside of that, the number of Christians who, you know, who would say like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-abortion, but you know, I'm also anti-condoms because they don't work. Well, I'm like, they, they work a lot better than no condom. (laughs) Right. Right. You know, but you know, you think of, so the other piece of this is that we're talking about cancer here. So that's yeah. even your future of um, being able to have babies as <laughs> right, well. Your actual you know? fertility, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so I'm thinking of like, you know, this, this, it just, it, it just makes me so sad to think yeah. of not being able to see sort of like a, a bigger picture to it. And, and to think that it's just tied into just something that might be, you know, just because of sin or whatever people can justify um, their thought, like when it's something so cure, like treatable, something yeah. so easy to avoid. It's kind of infuriating, but yeah. uh, a lot, very infuriating. But I mean, I want to bring this up just so that we can kind of frame this in such a way that we also see how abortion, the, the d- discourse around abortion does relate to that, mm-hmm. uh, that this other thing that's going on. But there's another thing that goes on, and that is this guy, Francis Schaefer. I loved Francis Schaeffer when I was young because he did cultural criticism. He was kind of doing theology and art and Western Civ and, and all of this. And, and it was, a, it was a, an interesting book for me. It was the kind of thing that at least helped me to have the kind of discussions and, and the thoughts, you know, as a high school student who's Christian. Um, and Francis Schaeffer is, is a mixed bag. His, uh, his son, you know, has, has written some question, you know, not questionable, but he's kind of criticized his dad on some of these things. Uh, but the main thing is Francis Schaeffer was one of the first evangelical voices in America. 
in the 60s and 70s to really make abortion an issue. And he was making it an issue from the perspective of morality. And he was, he was doing it in a way that I think I resonated with for this one reason as the child of baby boomers. Baby boomers were the, that generation that benefited from the sexual revolution and birth control, the birth control pill, and then the legalization of abortion after 1973. And to me as a young person, seeing all of the kids that had been neglected when mom and dad were going out to, quote, find themselves yeah. without caring for the kids that were kind of like shoeless at the commune or just like not attended to. Right. Everybody was finding their almost kind of narcissistic thing. And then by the time of the eighties roll around, these same counterculture hippies start to become more and more um, egocentric. The me culture, this, the, the, the very narcissistic, not in a clinical way, but in a, in a, an orientation, you know? And so for them, you know, when I'm saying nobody cared about us children, to me, the abortion issue was tied into just my own sense of neglect from society and so forth. Um, and from the baby boomers, kind of, you know, they're overcoming the parental pressures of people who had lived through the depression. Mm hmm. And so everything was about sacrifice and saving money. And now there's the baby boom, but affluence in America, at least for white America. And so these cats are having um, fun and don't care about their babies. So I, I kind of conflated those two, you know, growing up. In any case, I think that's what Francis Schaefer was about. People wanting to keep their affluence, people wanting to have nice homes and they don't want kids because they're selfish. There is, you know, like that was kind of the idea. Well, but I, I will say though, I do think that far too many people do have kids because they're selfish. Well, yeah, well, yeah they have kids because they think that, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. Right. And this is what, I, you know, I'm get married, have a house. Or it adorns their babies. ego. Yeah. Yes. Um, and this is, you know, this is their the life. This puppy. is what I'm supposed to, to have. And it's, it's, un it's unfortunate because so much goes into parenting and raising children and, mm -hmm. I don't think that most people even understand a quarter of it. <laughs> and meanwhile, the, the, before yeah. they become parents. And the propaganda we heard as American evangelicals was, you know, here's an example of a society that has abortions. The Chinese, you're only allowed to have one baby. So the state dictates how many babies you can have. And you have too many boys because girls aren't as valuable. So there was something kind of sexist about abortion. There was something kind of statist about abortion. There was something dystopian. You know, like you have to have a permit to have a baby. The state's kind of controlling your reproduction in that case. Well, Francis Schaeffer uh, comes along. He, again, he wrote that book, How Then Shall We Live? But basically, uh, when he first comes on the scene, a lot of evangelicals, like the Southern Baptists that he might talk to, they thought this was a Catholic thing. The Catholics, right? The Catholics had all the babies. Mm -hmm. Catholics said that, you know, um, essentially sex is for procreation only. Whereas the Puritans, as uptight as they were, they believed that married sex was for pleasure. So the Protestant kind of sexual ethic resisted the Catholic sanctity of life conversation. Mm -hmm. And when Francis Schaeffer comes along, he brings this kind of Catholic argument into evangelicalism. But it doesn't take over everything. Until in the 80s. In the 80s, cynical polit politicians... I mean, think about drawing in Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan early on doesn't care about abortion at all, right? Hmm. Uh, as, you know, but then he realizes, okay, how do you get conservative 
Mexican-American families to move from voting for the Democrats to, move to voting for Republicans. How do you get people to vote against their economic self-interest? You see, on this mm-hmm. podcast, we're talking about full-spectrum emancipation because we're trying to highlight the ways in which your sexual liberation is related to race, racial liberation, is related to financial liberation. Like all these things kind of fit together and how the church, spiritual liberation, is sometimes entangled in these ways of controlling us. So the point is, if, and I believe that capitalism is a sin, sorry friends if you disagree, and, and, and I don't mean like working hard and making money, I mean capitalism as a structure where you have to have poor people and then you have the wealthy getting wealthier. I just think that is, uh, Jesus straight up teaches against this and uh, it's cruelty. But, but given this, what do you need for capitalism to work? You need a whole class of impoverished people that are living hand to mouth. You can't get people to work for minimum wage unless they're in danger of starvation or, or, or just destitution. And if people don't have a lot of kids, that's, and you limit the population, then you have fewer workers and the, the you don't have to make as much money. You kids are expensive. Not only do you have, enough, you know. <laughs> not only do you have, you know, you don't have to make as much money, but there's more competition for employers mm that say, I need people to work for me. Well, if you just have a whole bunch of, of starving people lined up, they'll work for, for, right. for chump change. And that's how you get sweatshops. So abortion in one sense does pose a threat to capitalism in that it reduces the theory the would labor be, force. it reduces the, the size of the labor force. And, um, I mean, this happened after the black death where peasants were saying, Hey, well, I don't want to work on Maggie's farm no more, <laughs> you know, and I'm going to do something else and you can leave and people are going to want you to work on their field because they need the labor. Um, and not only labor, but also if you think about it, um, consumption, yeah, well, and I have never seen more recruiting for, um, any of our armed forces yeah. than in the middle of America from the poor, from the poor, underemployed towns. People in America. Yep. Like when we were living in Kentucky, coal mines are gone. You know, national guards, your only game and at and, best. And it was, I mean, there was some touching moments, even like at nine 11, seeing the national guard go off and how they many didn't think they were going to go fight in a foreign war. I did not even know like the, how big the national guard can be and even in our small town of Kentucky, like what sort of presence was there? It was it was crazy because right. I'm living in Southern California before that. Like that's yeah. not what people aren't really signing up, you know, for the National Guard. And so it was just yeah. this amazing thing to see all of like you know anything that was going into that and and then just anyway that was it was a powerful moment. Um, but yes, the recruitment that's happening in the especially the middle of the country or also. You know, sometimes um, in the the high schools and stuff, and they, right. these kids don't even like if you don't have options. Yep. I, and I'm not saying there are people that choose that even when they do sure. have options. So I'm not saying that that's the but only. But we're thing. not saying anything new. But usually, the ones that also are choosing it are also going into higher positions and not necessarily on the front yeah. lines. It ain't me. It ain't me. I ain't no senator's son. I ain't the fortunate one. I mean, that was that's the game. It's it's it's. Uh, I mean, my dad went. He enlisted time. in the army so that he can get college paid for right. and and be able because he didn't have options. His mom died when he was thirteen. Right. His parents were divorced. He didn't really know his dad. I mean, he didn't have very many options. You know, he had some family that was taking care of him, but like. You know, for him, it was like, oh, well, I mean, he would he would have been probably drafted for Vietnam anyway, but he went right. ahead and signed up so that you can go ahead and get, you know, the the education and everything else that would go along with it. 
But he did enter in mm. because he didn't have many other options that he felt were viable for him. Now, uh, maybe 15 years ago, maybe more, when I was working at Colorado Christian University and the Republican senator took over, um, he included in the new identity of the university uh, various issues like the sanctity of life within this, essentially the mission of the college I mean, that hadn't been originally there. And that comes out of this consolidation, this uh, movement that happened in the 80s to be able to, to really build the Republican Party around this kind of single issue for some people. So poor people, you can get them to vote against their best interest as long as you can say, if you're a Democrat, you're a baby murderer. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty cynical move, and it was used. Mm -hmm. there's, there's no doubt. Um, now, so that's part of it. Now, for us, I mean, I would just on a preliminary, uh, you know, kind of statement here, say, um, we're not really interested in telling you what to think about the morality of abortion, but we're trying to kind of highlight how we, even if you are personally against abortion, you should be a little bit scared, a lot scared about the tide change in America because it doesn't really represent people caring about babies. Right. It represents a power grab. It is white nationalism, Christian white nationalism. It's... It really is uh, surprising to me, though it shouldn't have been, how similar some of these things are to maybe more of a bold version of it, The Handmaid's Tale, right? Mm. Um, where where mm -hmm. like this is, this is about making women breeders again. It is not about protecting babies. That's my, that's my you know, hunch, not just mine. But the other thing is when you think about abortion. Um, I, when I was back at Colorado Christian, I was tasked with creating a workshop on the topic of abortion, and I wrote something which they didn't use. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. But basically, uh, at that point, my, my point was, uh, Christians should confess before they prophesy. And the confession is twofold. One, um, the, the same Christians that were these conservative Christians, politically conservative as well, um, were not interested in feeding, educating, providing health care, or college for these babies that they demanded exist. So, so what they were saying is, I don't care for them after they're born, essentially. Right. Maybe Christian families will adopt them and indoctrinate them into their way, but ultimately the, the, the lack of resources and the lack of compassion for the poor families yeah. was astounding. Okay, so that's the first part. Why, if people are in poverty and you haven't done anything to follow Jesus in addressing poverty, then you need to kind of shut up about abortion a little bit. Because let me tell you what sucks worse than abortion. You just think about starving to death, uh, growing up in a foster care system where you are like systematically sexually abused until you get out of the house um, and then deal with that trauma for the rest of your life, right? Like, right. like I don't want that. And so for me, when I think about kind of virtue ethics and I think about Jesus teaching, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If I were a fetus and I was going to be born into abject poverty, um, two weeks of suffering and pain before I expire at the you know for with two weeks of life, um, uh, growing up in an abusive home, uh, being having my mother be ten years old or thirteen years old because of an incest situation that I get brought into. Right. Nope. Foster care system. We know this foster care system well enough to know. Um, 
boy, oh boy, that's that's not a, a real great solution for no, masses of society. It isn't. So, and unfortunately, I mean, there are some, I'm sure, good folks that get into that, but there are a lot of, I mean, it can be a way of making money or, you know, allowing other people to take care of themselves. It's also, it can be I mean, people that also want to control others again, right. or or even have, you yeah, know. Yeah, be have, in somebody's army. I don't want to be in some, like, conservative, like, homeschool religious dude's army. So what I'm saying is, also because I believe that that there's this grand spirit that like it's, it's it's fine like we don't have to enter into this particular existence i personally if i am going to be born into the world i would say no thank you mm-hmm. and i would be grateful mm-hmm. i understand it's painful i understand these are very tough decisions and you don't always know sometimes you think it's not going to go well i think life can... was hard enough when i had parents that yeah cared for me and right. put a roof over my head and and you know cared for my well-being Right. So at the very basic level of morality, there's that. And I think the other thing that's important is I have spoken with a several off the record, off the record, several um, Christians who are doctors or nurses, mm-hmm. and they express such grief and sorrow mm. because they have so many experiences where there are really sweet Christian parents that... Mm. I think they think, we both think, I mean, that, that these poor parents are, are, are just cre- are, are pushed into a, a horrifying show, a horrifying experience where they believe that God demands that they bring to term a child that will live in pain for a year maybe or a few weeks maybe or something and they have to experience that or else they're bad people well and they think that so yes they murder do, or or causing a child suffering that they need to do everything humanly possible one to bring the baby to term but two to keep the baby alive and when talking to some of those folks they oh. were saying they see years later still the pain in these oh. families that has happened when like there's the quality of life just isn't, and and, and just the the pain and the sorrow and the the, the struggle. I mean, it just it can break you, and you know? and and it, and it hurts another being. Like so, you're trying to make a point. You're yeah. trying to make a point. Yeah. You're causing a being suffering. You're causing a being suffering, to make a political or or some kind of deontological philosophical point. Point being, you don't have to agree with us, friends. But all we're saying is. We understand if you're in that situation, if you had been in that situation, we know a lot of people that are Christians that have had abortions because of danger, even like a percentage calculation of danger to the mother or uh, or certain uh, severe deformities of the child that they would um, that they just live with this grief. And every time they're sitting here hearing Christians talk about abortion, they're thinking about their own situation. We send you our love. Our Care Bear hearts go out to you. This isn't about I have somebody very close disregard. to me if that's the case, you know. Yeah. So, um, the thing, though, that's really interesting to me is that abortion is an easier one for people to kind of use for propaganda and rhetoric. But what really is, to me, indicative of what was going on is that the real problem was the birth control pill. Mm. The birth control pill was the problem, not because as some, you know, some Catholic ethicists will say, well, like an IUD will cause, uh, you know, a fertilized egg not to implant. And they say that's an abortion too. Like life begins at conception. So that's abortion too. And, um, 
I'd like to just like kind of leave that aside. I think uh, God bless you, Catholics. Uh, some of y'all a uh, little bit superstitious on these things, like like that. I don't even at the best. I think the discourse on abortion is really unfortunate when we can't recognize the difference between four divided cells and and uh, and uh, almost born a fetus that is able to feel some kind of pain right. theoretically. I, I don't know the, well, the physiology, my point being, there's a difference and uh, being unable to recognize a difference or, or when I, when I was saying to, uh, so to the Colorado Christian, you should first recognize poverty and you haven't done enough about it. And second, you should recognize that you are going to make it really hard for unwed mothers with the shame, sexual mm-hmm. shame. Mm-hmm. So it is in, it is in the Christian context that you're, likely more often more incentivized to secretly having an abortion. In fact, we've seen many times people that are involved in like as abortion doulas, as we met an abortion doula at, uh, at our local tea plays um, or people who are uh, like, you know, just kind of folks who walk alongside and, and kind of protect people going into Planned Parenthood, maybe just for other, you know, reasons um, that, that what they're doing um, is often, um, it becomes very interesting. They will see people that are, let's say 17 year olds that are brought by their parents and their churches to come protest at a Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. And then later they come to Planned Parenthood Mm. because they can't go to their own doctors because they don't don't want their parents to find out and they don't have insurance or whatever. Right. Like, so, um, the point, the, the point there is that, um, uh, th- that for me, you've got to confess those two things. And then I said that, you know, the main reason that Christians should have a problem with abortion is if we, um, if we think of babies as like, like Paris Hilton's dog, right? So mm-hmm. if, if abortion is about making sure you can select the eye color of your child oh, gosh. or you, the gender of your child, even, oh, that's terrible. do you know what I'm saying? Like, so yes. those kind of things, but that's not usually what's going down. And as we've said before on the podcast, Usually when somebody is in that situation, they have other things that are really uh, tragic about their lives that we're not addressing. And then we just kind of focus in on, you know. Yeah. I mean, I've heard stories of people that it's actually the males that are requiring them to get the abortion because Mm. the male doesn't want to get trapped into, Mm. you know, the, the raising of a child and they're not ready. Someone's threatening their lives if they don't, even if they wanted to keep the baby. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. So, um, so you get the point though, that like when in the sixties people had the birth control pill, this was part of that sexual liberation because it allowed people to be able to have their sexual lives and not necessarily get married, Mm -hmm. not have to get married to the person that they might sleep with. Um, or might not, uh, have to stay in a relationship because they needed the dad around as women, uh, to provide for the kids that they made, right? And it goes the other way. Sometimes women will use pregnancy to um, to keep their man around, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, but in all of that, but I, I want to back up yeah. really quick with the one thing I was saying is, make no mistake, friends. If if the if there is a somebody like that is willing actually to threaten somebody. Uh, to get an abortion, they're also going to make sure that, that happens, whether it's legal or not. And that's, that's, oh, that's oh, what you mean I'm like when, yeah, when people want you to have an abortion to hide the fact that yes. it happened. Yeah, that, that's that a common thing. What I'm well. saying is, yeah. is even if we make it illegal, yeah. it, you, you know, you go back now to, I don't know, alleyways or dark, you know, pl- places or whatever, even, you know, it, 
if somebody, if, if a powerful uh, person <laughs> is trying to make this happen, it's going to happen. And it's just how safe is, is the, is the potential mother. Right. So there is, the there is that protection. Situation. Yeah. For the women involved. Indeed. All right. So you're ready to talk about Emma Goldman. We're going to go back in time now. So the point being, abortion becomes a big issue primarily because they're against sexual liberation of women. They're against the idea of women being able to have autonomy over their bodies. But more importantly, it's not just their bodies. See, everyone always talking about the, my body, my choice. Yes, yes, yes. But it's your body, your choice, your destiny, your future, your enslavement to a claustrophobic relationship with some dude that manipulated you in the first place. Did you get married when you were 18? Did you get married when you were 16? We met somebody who was married when she was 16. That's crazy. You know, so the choices, you know, do you trust yourself to make choices when you're 16, 17, 18? Um, You know, there you go. So Emma Goldman, let's go back to a young Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman, I am kind of, I got like a historical crush on Emma Goldman. Mm -hmm. But, you know, everybody that met her kind of did. Um, She was one of these people that even if you thought she kind of frustrated you, she was punk. You know, like, imagine a really politically savvy um, Courtney uh, Cobain or something, right? Where she's like a rocker, but she's kind of got like, you know, there's like a, she's, she's got an edge, but also is kind of interesting, you mm-hmm. know? She was very, very interesting. But Emma Goldman, she lives from 1869 to 1940. She had a really traumatic childhood. There was inappropriate sexual stuff at her school early on. She went off to a boarding school. Uh, People were mean to her. Her father was distant. Um, He was a a disappointed, uh, poor Jewish guy. And uh, she comes as an immigrant to America, right? And um, she speaks Yiddish. She's Jewish. Um, But I think it's really important for us to recognize the, uh, the, the scenario into which people are finding themselves um, when they're immigrants in America. You get this Statue of Liberty, come to me, all you who are tired, poor, you know, this kind of idea. She's on Ellis Island, and she so- soon starts to realize that it is not going to be easy for her as a young woman trying to work in the New York factories or as a seamstress or or whatever. It's going to be hard to find work. And uh, when she comes into this world where she's trying to find work, she's also kind of um, given the sense that she's never really supposed to make enough money to survive. She's eventually going to have to find a man. So she can make a little bit of money and she can live with four other gals in an apartment um, with terrible conditions. But she's not really going to be able to survive unless she shack, not shacks up, but, but gets married. And, um, and I, I think that's important to recognize like how, how this comes in, into play. But she also then kind of gets connected up with anarchists. So she was always kind of interested in it. So there was this uh, Haymarket riot in 1866. And there were some anarchists that were, you know, kind of framed. There wasn't good evidence. And then they were, they were executed. And so uh, these so-called... <laughs> that, that's, that's a familiar uh, oh, it's story a very, in history. Well, we'll see here. Anarchists aren't doing so well. Not even uh, just anarchists, <laughs> but anyway, yes. So well, the ra- I mean, anarchists, going against radicals... The dominant power and control. Um, labor union organizers, they're getting 
killed by the Pinkerton Detective Agency. They're getting beaten to death. And they're getting, that's why Emma Goldman would call it judicial murder. It's, it's, they're, mm-hmm. they're being murdered because they're threats, they're political threats. Uh, somebody threw a bomb and the, some cops died. So there you go. You're not going to win that one. And the system tends to support itself. In any case, she was. Wait, you mean people getting murdered because. They're a political threat. I yes. feel like that happened in the Bible somewhere. Uh, yes, Jesus. <laughs> that's right. So that's how she kind of saw it and then mm-hmm. actually used, sometimes used that language. And, um, and and by the way, unlike some of the other anarchists, would work with, you know, the Catholic uh, workers movement and so forth, as long as they were there for the, the betterment of people. But as a young person, so here she is, she's this young girl. She realizes this land of the free and the home of the brave is much more terrifying than yeah. she ever expected. She's not going to be able to survive it without getting a man. Mm. She, she, she's got this voice. She's smart as heck, right? And, and then she sees this and she gets such a, a, a devotion to the cause of anarchism because she sees it. She sees it so raw because of where she's coming from. She sees that these people that are getting killed are her kind of people. People that are at their moment of desperation. They left desperate situations and persecution in Europe. They come to America and uh, it is there again. And... And in sometimes in worse ways. And, uh, and so she dedicates herself to this cause. But one of my favorite things about Emma Goldman, there's a quote that maybe isn't exact, but it certainly reflects her spirit. Uh, she said, uh, uh, according to memes, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, if I can't dance, I don't want to be a part of your revolution. Mm-hmm. And the reason this was true is because she thought that freedom, liberation, wasn't just about the anti-capitalism or labor union, but it's about dancing again. It's about human relationships, community, joy. And uh, for anybody who's thinking about like, you know, anarchism is just, you know, chaos and doom uh, and negativity. Really, it's for her a combination of, of political activism and what we would think of as kind of hippie ideas. Yeah. And, and that's what I think is, is so groovy about her. Um, but so she didn't go, go for that austerity. So some of her early anarchist friends, she starts to hang out with anarchist kids. And, and I, I just, like, I always, I read her biography and just loved it because I wanted to be there with them. They're hanging out, you know, but it was also very challenging. But they're hanging out with all these, like, intellectuals, but they're also, I don't know if inter- intellectual is the right word, but they're, they're theorists, you know, talking about this stuff, speaking about this stuff, educating people about this stuff mm-hmm. um, who, who are uneducated generally. But, like, one of uh, her, her friends, Sasha, um, uh, who she's kind of romantically involved with, she has, like, 15 very serious relationships that we know of. And, and one of them is a lifelong relationship with this guy uh, she affectionately calls Sasha. And Sasha is down on her when she hangs out with another, um, with this guy Most, um, Johan Most, and they, they get wine. And so Sasha says, you can't be an anarchist and go get fine wine at a Manhattan restaurant. She says, no, 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 no. Every once in a while, we're going to have fun. Or she's got another anarchist friend who's an artist. And that seems like such a, a frivolous thing. Mm. They should always be doing activism, you know. So, no, she thought that full-spectrum emancipation meant both political activism and joy. So dance is play, right? Play. Being able to, yeah. Here's her actual quote uh, from uh, Living My Life, which I, I think is, it's a very long book. Uh, but she says, I did not believe that a cause which stood for a beautiful idea 
for anarchism, for release and freedom from convention and prejudice should demand the denial of life and joy. And I think that's also one of the reasons why I stayed on the conservative side as a kid uh, politically, because to me, especially in California, the quote unquote liberals, the, 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 the nanny state, they just didn't want me to have any fun. Tipper Gore, Al Gore's wife, didn't want me to listen to my hip hop mm. or to heavy metal. Hmm. So like the killjoys in my youth were primarily the, uh, the Democrats and the, and the libertarian side of the Republicans. They might have been personally conservative in their social politics. But when I was growing up, I was a libertarian. I, I, I didn't see myself as a Republican. I was more on the right. But for me, it was an individualist anarchy mm. where um, I was personally against abortion, but I believed in... Um, I was, you know, like theoretically pro-choice when it came to the state. I was against uh, violence and aggression, but I was um, pro-gun uh, rights for the individual, for, for protection, right? And eventually that kind of changed. When I was a kid, a lot of people on the right were, were uh, libertarians. They believed in open borders. Well, libertarian- and then all of a sudden they became anti-immigrant. You know, they became fascists. A lot of my libertarian friends became fascists. And libertarians also... Quasi-fascists. Uh, and fascists. <laughs> I could see that... Um, I could, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the connection to capitalism as well with libertarianism, right? Allowing... Have the government try to do a little bit hands-off yes. and let supply and demand or whatever. Anarcho-capitalism. All of that. Individualist. But by yeah. the way, interesting thing. Uh, this is a very disappointing thing. We might even want to do a podcast on this, Stacey. There's a new show out. Um, there's a series on HBO. Mm-hmm. called The Anarchists. And these are individualist anarchists that are into cryptocurrency. They all go down to Acapulco. They have parties, but these are all like primarily white libertarian dudes that follow Ayn Rand, who is an anarcho-capitalist gotcha. and, and that kind of thing, and uh, the Chicago school. So, um, so that side of things is a, is a very strong... Uh, form of libertarianism in America, but for many, I, I would prefer not to be called an anarchist. I'd prefer to be called a libertarian. Mm-hmm. But in America, libertarian is a term that was taken over by individualist libertarians to the exclusion of libertarian socialists, which is what I am. Does that make sense? So, like, we look out for each other, whereas the individualists are like, hey, you know, I just do what I'm Socialists, I, I mean, I, buzzwords, right? So explain um, your version of then briefly, just one quick sentence. Yeah, well, on. socialism says that, that we are in this together. So it's actually in our best interest for us to build a society where old people, unwanted children, um, ecological degradation, you know, all of that is addressed not by a, a centralized state, but as local communities that say, we're going to take care of each other. We're going to have what anarchists call mutual aid. It's not charity. It's not where you got a bunch of poor people that I'm throwing some coins into their cup or I'm giving them free needles, and that's the extent of it. Uh, mutual aid is where we see each other as a village and family. And, and uh, in those early you know, hunter-gatherer contexts or in archaic villages, you know, you're looking out for each other. Right. And when you, know, you don't have to depend on the fact that you had five kids for somebody to care about you when you're you know, drooling on yourself at home. People are going to people are going to look out for you. So socialist just means, you know, not uh, state socialism, but that we are going to share our resources with each other because we really don't you own actually them. care about other people. And the idea that uh, it's anti uh, kind of private property in the sense that I don't get to just say that my children for all like the rest of time get to keep building up 
square footage on this earth and then other people just like live under bridges and can't get on there's my... no space yeah so like the libertarians of the right the individualist libertarians the individualist anarchists basically are kind of social darwinists often mm. if you can't struggle through it then you right. know only you... the survival of the i first. get to keep my stuff mm-hmm. it's all about me and, and i'm not going to look out necessarily for others and the libertarian socialist says hey let's like share some cows let's recognize well here's another thing there's a group called the georgists that are like i hope people would look into them if you don't like our anarchist thing the georgists are people that said uh they were called single taxers but the idea is Companies and individuals can use land, but the land owns to all the people or or belongs to all the people. It's kind of like in, uh, I think it's Norway, where there are companies that are going to extract oil from the land, but the land is owned by all the people. So when they make their money, there's a percentage of that that goes back to the people. They're essentially renting their land from the people Mm -hmm. rather than the people renting it from slumlords. Same kind of thing when you have a basic income in in Alaska. Yeah, I was going to say, with Alaska, they get a certain amount because what their resources are used and things. If the state or a company uses a resource, you get to you get a piece of that, which totally makes sense. Like, this is just, this is just. Um, Anyway, so, uh, but back to Emma Goldman, because really what I'm interested in here is how how her life is so tied in with... um, you know, the problems of um, uh, the sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can't have political freedom. You can't have economic freedom, she thinks. You can't have racial justice if you don't have um, women, if you don't have 50% of your population uh, escape from their uh, breeder status as uh, essentially servants. And you see this in, in all sorts of places that are like, you know, uh, non-white communities as well. And so like... You, this was a thing that she kept running into. So she, she says, Hey, I got to get married. So her first marriage is to this guy, Jacob Kirshner. Um, she does it for citizenship. It's a loveless marriage. He's impotent. It ends in divorce. Later, the dude threatens suicide. So she remarries him. Mm-hmm. You know, this is that kind of dynamic, but ultimately that bad experience with this first marriage leads her to reject the restraining nature of marriage in general. Mm. Uh, she says, quote, if, if ever I love a man again, I will give myself to him without being bound by the rabbi or the law. I declared this to myself. And when that love dies, I will leave without permission. Yeah. This is very interesting, but also very threatening. She would go in and speak at a church on the demolishing of the state apparatus. And people be uncomfortable, but they're listening. She would talk about the importance of the rights of the worker, and people would listen. But workers and politicians and generally open-minded people, the minute she said, hey, wait a minute, maybe we can have free love, oh, she got, she got run out. Mm. I mean, people went nuts when it got to the question of, what they called free love. And often they think, oh, is it like, is Emma into orgies and, you know, just being, you know, a harlot, you know, whatever. Um, no, she was actually like a serial monogamous. She would go really deep into relationships and she had very passionate, committed relationships 
to one person at a time. Yeah. But when they started to try to make her their wife. Or own her. Or own her. And specifically own her and say, you're threatening me because you're more famous than me. Or mm. you are off speaking around the world and I want you to be at home with me to be my safety blanket. You know, that, that sort of thing. Um, you know, I think um, that there is something really powerful about that because she recognized the, that important connection between these things. You know, like you couldn't, you can't just, um, well, yeah. As Lao Tzu would say, the obligation kills the love. Yeah. And creates a whole bunch of hell. I mean, he doesn't say it exactly yeah, that no, way, no, but no, I'm no, just right. saying that's where you start. When you, when you have obligation, that you know, then everything starts to just kind of degrade in any way. Now, when she was younger, before all these relationships, she had this anonymous lover. She doesn't mention who it was. And this person initiated her sexual life and it was, it was painful for her. Mm -hmm. It was not tender. It was not enjoyable. Uh, she writes, quote, after that, I always felt between two fires in the presence of men. Their lure remained strong, but it always was mingled with violent revulsion. I could not bear to have them touch me. I think it's interesting mm -hmm. because she does have a lot of these passionate re relationships with men. She talks about crimes she committed. Mm -hmm. She talks about being friends with people that ended up being assassins. And then she like, she just is very open in her biography, but we now know historians know that she had, um, important bisexual, uh, well, she was bisexual and she had important relationships with women. And she mentioned all sorts of things. The one thing that she hid from the world was her lesbian relationships. Hmm. She just like doesn't even mention it, which is just shocking because like it shows you that that's like the, that one thing, the homophobia. So first there's like sexism. There's like, cons you know, constraints. She'll on take the down the government. Right. But but that was like, you know, a step too far. Yeah. Her first like moment to really be important was when this guy named Johann Most, who is a, an important uh, thinker and speaker and writer in uh, Europe, came out to the United States. He had uh, some injuries, so he had this really messed up face. And so he grew this big beard over his messed up face. So he had very, he was very insecure. And so he had this kind of like, he had this re relationship with Emma, touches her leg. It kind of reminds me of like a young employee at like in any kind of movement, you know, kind of like a, maybe a Biden thing or a, or a Bill Clinton thing or a pastor with a secretary kind of thing. She didn't see it always in those terms. But um, uh, eventually she gets into a relationship with this guy, but he's so insecure hmm. uh, because of all of these other reasons that it's a, it's a very kind of unfortunate relationship. Emma calls him a man child and a quote, stormy petrol of my fancy. Uh, do you remember what a stormy petrol does, Stacey? <laughs> no. <laughs> the stormy petrol uh, flies and steals the fish out of the mouth of uh, seagulls. That uh, make the seagulls catch the fish. Uh -huh. So the stormy petrol comes along and is like kind of a, a pirate. You know right, what I'm saying? Right. I could go through, I mean, I've always thought about this, going through all of like Emma Goldman's lovers and like <laughs> what we learned from them. Not important. Okay. But she did have a lot of lovers. And, um, and yet, uh, one of the things that's interesting here, just to, as an aside, is this idea of the, the tyranny of the company store. Now, this is where your employer is paying you base, you know, very minimum salary mm -hmm. or hourly wage. And yet you have to buy stuff from them. And so sometimes you're buying stuff on credit. Maybe you rent 
from them yeah. a space. So now like you owe everything to the, your employer and now you can't escape. Yeah. I've actually had that in my real own yes. life. I had a pastor. Who, so there was a pastor who was my boss. He was, uh, so I worked for him. He was also my pastor and he was our landlord. Yeah. Oopsie daisy. Friends. Hey, hey, here's a way to avoid some uh, hell in your life. Uh, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> don't ever do that. Um, but, but her, really her strongest like relationship was, was, was with this guy, Alexander Berkman, who I already mentioned, but she calls him Sasha. It's a kind of Eastern European thing. Your nickname has nothing to do <laughs> with your, uh, your main name, but he, uh, he has an assassination attempt, um, related to one of these like robber barons and so forth. So he goes to jail. He's got a, a, a rivalry with most. Now this like boyfriend that she's got is in jail for years and it almost breaks him and, and she sometimes sneaks in to see him, but it, it was tough. They eventually kind of reconnect later in life. Um, but she ends up living in a brothel for a time. Mm-hmm. And the reason she ends up living in a brothel uh, is because Nobody will rent to her. Red Emma is an anarchist. Nobody would rent to the anarchist. So because she was a public figure, and I never really thought about this, all these interesting political figures, where do you go? Yeah. If everybody knows who you are, they don't want you in there. So the brothel, they're already the outcasts of society. See how Jesus, Jesus hung out? On top of that, out? there's people paying attention and protecting the women there. Yes. The, the, Jesus hung out with the prostitutes and the sinners, right? Like, mm-hmm. so hanging out with the prostitutes and sinners, like it helped her to kind of understand kind of what was going on. And who are these prostitutes? Were they wayward women? Were they were people that just like love sex and didn't want to behave themselves? No, they had no options. So she starts to see the, the, the sex worker. Yeah. Yeah. It's like really important for her to understand how that's, you know, part of all this. And she meets this guy named uh, Edward Brady 1.2. I I really just, just, I won't tell you all. I I keep saying, I'm not going to tell you all the the boyfriends, but I'll just tell you one. Uh, This guy, Edward Brady comes up to her and says, I like playing with fire, don't you? As he's like <laughs> playing with a match, like let's burn it down. It's like he's like one of those kind of like steamy, uh, you know, kind of anarchists. So she's kind of susceptible to this. But um, she's always looking not only, I mean, it's behind the surface, her desire to have a real relationship with women. She doesn't, I think, have as many relationships with women as she would have maybe today because women were not, her equals. Yeah. I mean, does that make sense? It wasn't that they weren't her equals. That, yeah, society, I mean, really didn't leave a lot of space for a woman to ever become her equal. Yeah. You know, so that, that's, that makes sense. She almost becomes besties with this gal, Voltarine Declare, and uh, she's an American feminist, uh, an anarchist. Uh, Voltarine calls herself an anarchist without adjectives, which means don't define your anarchism. Just say, hey, we're free. So you can do it however you want. Like, let's not be overly prescriptive about it. But she's also ultimately an individualist anarchist, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But they, they're, they're kind of close. But she doesn't like, uh, Emma doesn't like somebody that Voltarine was dating because he had not been, like, trustworthy in another context. And you, you had to be very careful with your friends because they could then tell the police what you're about to do. Mm-hmm. So because mm-hmm. of that, they have a falling out. And she's, she's constantly having these problems with women. So she writes, instead of friendship from women, I had met with much antagonism, petty envy, and jealousy because men liked me. Mm-hmm. So this goes to that question, like, why is it so hard in, in capitalist, misogynistic, hierarchical society for women to be friends? Mm-hmm. Women can be friends. They think that they're the, the competition. And because of that, 
um, like that part of her, I think, is thwarted. Um, with some exceptions, when she does find a totally liberated woman, they get on really, you know, nicely usually. But it's it's been hard for it was hard for her throughout her life. She found that it was easier for her to speak in public, by the way, in, in England about things than in America. Because in England, this is kind of a fascinating paradox. In England, they knew that nothing was going to change. So, like, the industrialists and the mm. crowns, like, oh, go ahead and protest. So, mm. you can just go say all the crap that you want, but there's still a monarchy. Right. The, the coal We're not mines going just, anywhere. No, right, right, right. Whereas in America, there was always the sense that it could, the revolution could actually happen in mm. America, you mm. know. Um, but here's the thing. So, all of this, she says, you can't really get full-spectrum emancipation, to use our language, without birth control. Mm. And so, she's right. I never thought of it this way when I was younger. Like, what, like well, that's just a side issue. No, it's, it's the main issue. Um, I mentioned this, you know, the birth control pill was a big deal. Did you know hormone-based contraception was not invented until 1950? The hormone-based version that we know today right. is the pill. And it was not approved for use until 1960. Hmm. And it was perceived as a, a massive threat. In 1965, this is what the... The Connecticut Supreme Court said this in 1965, quote, any person who uses any drug, medicinal article or instrument for the purpose of preventing conception shall be fined not less than $50 or imprisoned not less than 60 days, nor more than one year, or be both fined and imprisoned. So you face prison and a significant fine for 1965 if you practice not abortion, but contraception. So you can see how there's this element in society where doctors are very uncomfortable with prescribing it. People are very uncomfortable because now you've got suburban, especially suburban, upper class, white women saying, maybe I want to do something different. Yeah. Well, and I, to me, I was shocking when, uh, I, you know, I, my experience with birth control hasn't birth control pills has not mm. been great. Right. And, um, you know, I was worried too, cause blood clots run in my family. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I haven't had a whole lot, um, of experience with the pill, but what was fascinating was deciding to see, okay, let me just try this getting on the pill. Not that long. I, I don't know. And uh, after 2010 sometime, right. Mm -hmm. Starting it. And then basically being told that I, my um, insurance company will no longer cover the cost of my birth control pills uh, because I, it was connected to a religious institution that chose not to cover the birth control yeah, pills. Yeah, I'm a little upset by this. I'm not a lot upset. I, like, I'm trying to not like kind of – I'm trying to focus on all the positive, wonderful things about my, my prior life. Uh, but that, that was really upsetting. Well, like, I, 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 it's all philosophical the until first all of thing, a sudden. But, yeah. And also, too, the first thing you do is stop paying for it. You know, and yeah. then if society starts accepting that, then, gonna for, then they're going to criminalize then it. Then you start to criminalize it. And so there's, there is a, a, a movement, a progression of these things. Sorry, I digress. No, but. no, it's very important. It's very important. And uh, in the old, it, when, you could see these in like women's magazines, the birth control pill, but they, they were not allowed to call it the birth control pill. The, the birth control part, contraception was off label. That's mm -hmm. how they got around it. And so the ads had to be stuff like it's going to reduce, you know, bleeding irregularities, gastrointestinal disturbances. Oh, and that was part of it. Problem with PMS. Part of, that was part of it. And even the largest reason that I chose to try to go on the, the pill originally was because my, the, my 
the PMS and like the, all the symptoms and how much I was bleeding and everything was so bad that the, that's what the doctors had recommended to try to help, you know, regulate, regulate and normalize some of that that was going on in my system. Right. Now, despite that, despite the fact that it wasn't until after Emma Goldman dies that you have like the hormone based birth control, that is not the whole story because in 1800, uh, so the year 1800 in America, the U.S. birth rate was the highest in the world. So like we were just mm. popping up babies like bunny rabbits. Moms would have an average of eight children. So if you're all saying, hey, I'm one of these quiverful people. So your like, family is, was a normal size. My family having eight kids was crazy. But apparently <laughs> that was the game, right, like in the old days. Now you had a lot of infant mortality and kids, you know, a lot of kids would die. By the end of the 19th century, women bore an average of three kids. Mm. So now what does this tell us? It tells us that somewhere along the line, I mean, historians have to piece this stuff together. Is it in magazines? Is it into the public square? Is it legal? Mm, no. But if you go 100 years, eight children to three children, the only way to do that is either to have sex less often, uh, you know, maybe practice the, the uh, what do we call it, uh, the, the rhythm method, mm -hmm, you know, like mm -hmm. you're, you're tracking your ovulation. They didn't have iPhones where they were tracking their, uh, their periods. But, you know, you can kind of... You but know, maybe some get... knowledge of how the system actually is working, right? But I just... <laughs> that just doesn't... I mean, people have known that. So that, that doesn't seem to explain it. And so it, it does seem that, that contraception was being used by families and they just didn't talk about it. Well, um, in 1840, um, contraception was finally banned uh, in America, but it remained popular. Mm. And um, I'm looking here uh, at this photograph. I, I can't really share it. Uh, it's a podcast, um, but it's a photograph of a condom from the Civil War. And um, there it, it disguised the nature of the purpose. They, they didn't want to say this is for contraception, but maybe like hygienic or like, I, you know, uh, some other reason for this device <laughs> that's kind of obvious. But people were, people were using uh, contraception of some form during the Civil War. And uh, in the 19th century, abortions, and by abortion we mean surgical abortions, but also pharmaceutical abortions, some kind of um, chemical or, you know, I, I don't know the science of it, but they were being used and they were legal until what they called the quickening. And the quickening is when you can feel the fetus move. So the idea is quickening is where the soul kind of goes into it. That's how they thought of it. Mm, um, mm, some mm. cultures, some people even say that people, that people don't really consider a child uh, a person until they named it. And so like, you know, in, in you know, ancient Israel, you name the child eight days after uh, because um, so often they wouldn't make it. Yeah. So it was just a kind of a way to say like, this is now we're going to kind of invest emotionally in this, in this being. Um, whether that's right or wrong, that that's kind of helpful to see how this worked. And so the popularity of abortion among middle-class white women is what I, th I think, and what scholars tend to say, is what eventually leads to the banning of abortion and reproductive control of any kind. Now, in 1873, there's this thing called the Comstock Act, named after this jackass named Comstock. And... The way that Comstock gets around some of these political issues is the use of the, 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 the post office. Mm. So you could be an artist and you can depict a nude, the nude form. But if you mail it to me through the federal government, then you can get in trouble. Gotcha. You, therefore, sending somebody literature 
sending so, like and and this is where Emma Goldman could get in trouble sending people literature through the mail specifically through the 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 newspaper the anarchist newspaper that she had that helps people to understand how to use birth control or how to use other things that they can buy readily for birth control um, there's no law against that except now it was called obscene obscene mm. so by it being obscenity pornography is of course the thing that was primarily you know what they talked about but they included instructions on how to how to not have a baby, mm. um, and so that was uh, that was condemned, and uh, this gets her into a, a lot of trouble on several occasions. Around the same time, of course, you get to prohibition. Things are getting weird. All right, almost done. I mentioned at the stop the top of the show Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger is famous as being at that kind of origin of Planned Parenthood. People love to talk about. Like they, they talk about all the bad things about Margaret Sanger in a way uh, so that they can reject Planned Parenthood in general. Um, Margaret Sanger and others in that, in that scene were kind of neo-Malthusians. And this is important for us to realize. They're Nazi-adjacent. <laughs> Margaret Sanger contributes, donates money against the Nazi. She's not a Nazi. She rejects that. But when I say Nazi adjacent, it's the idea that you have kind of parasitic people, too many people, um, and we need to kind of cleanse ourselves from that, right? And it's associated with this idea of eugenics, that you're going to not let everybody pass on their genetic material. They, you want only the best, the healthiest, right? You don't want birth defects. You don't want, um unwanted people it's the, it's that kind of thing it's an interesting interesting way that it kind of bounces be- between the kind of nationalist fascist vibe you know and the liberal vibe in any case um, malthus uh, malthus was this guy that basically said um that the way that you deal with like the exponential growth of populations is through war and famine so you get like food production is linear that means, like, you know, you're, you're able to get more and more food, but it's not really going to be exponential. The population growth is like yeah. mold. And it's like all of a sudden you're going to hit this point where all of a sudden you've got this massive population boom and you don't have enough food for people. Gotcha. So how do you deal with that? Well, this, you, could do, you could deal with it through war or famine, people dying, mm-hmm. you know, or you know, starvation. Or you could do it the nice way and just not have people being in that situation. So it was, there was an ethics to it. Um, but it sometimes is, is uh, well, it's why people think of economics as the dismal science. It's n- not pleasant. Margaret Sanger lives from 1879 to 1966. But the thing that's interesting, just so before I badmouth her, um, I want to say that I recognize there's a lot of Christians that badmouth her. I already mentioned it. They badmouth Margaret Sanger and therefore dismiss the entirety of the, the positive things that, say, Planned Parenthood does. Or just kind of use this to distract us from the questions related to society and abortion, right? A couple things that probably people don't know. Um, She distinguished herself from other eugenicists. Um, She writes, quote, "Um, eugenicists imply or insist that a woman's first duty is to the state. That's the Nazi part. Mm. We contend that a woman's duty is to herself and that this duty to herself is the way that she can serve the state, if you have to serve the state. We maintain that a woman possessing an adequate knowledge of her reproductive functions is the best judge 
of the time and conditions under which her child should be brought into the world. That's kind of a moral argument. Yes. This isn't a Nazi argument. This is a woman knows when it's right for her to bring a, a child into the world. And who else are we going to let decide this? We further maintain that it is her right, regardless of all other considerations, to determine whether she shall bear children or not, and how many children she shall bear if she chooses to become a mother. So that's the thing. It was like women's empowerment problems, of course. Is it white women's empowerment? Is it socialite women's empowerment? Maybe, you know. But that's, that's the kind of the game plan she's got. But she's not distinctly a racist eugenicist, but an individualist eugenicist. That is to say, um, you want a healthy and happy environment. You want kids that are going to be able to thrive. But it's not about like getting rid of Jewish people or black people. Gotcha. That's not the game. At least not in her, like the stuff that she says explicitly here. And incidentally, this is the thing that most people don't realize. She herself was actually anti-abortion. She thought that birth control was good and that abortion was murder. I, I don't know why I never had been taught that. Maybe because it wasn't convenient. Yeah, <laughs> Either for the left or the right, right? Yeah. Like Planned Parenthood, they have pictures of her, you know. Yeah, that's true. But she was against abortion. Um, but to me, most importantly, she, she was too afraid when Emma Goldman was getting in trouble with the Comstock Act, when Emma Goldman was getting attacked by the politicians, uh, Emma Goldman was Jewish. Emma Goldman was um, not wealthy, uh, she wasn't part of that socialite class. And um, so so um, Sanger, Margaret Sanger, be, doesn't betray her, but like doesn't back her up when she gets arrested. Mm. She doesn't speak on her behalf. And Emma feels really like, man, this girl. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Let like, down a little bit. Like, you, yeah. Can you see my plight here? Um, and the reason she didn't want to back her up is because she didn't believe in Emma's idea of free love. So like mm -hmm. Margaret Sanger wanted empowerment for women to be able to choose when they're going to have babies, but they're still supposed to be, you know, the wife. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, so um, in many ways, I think Emma is a better, you know, feminist in the sense of, of really taking it seriously. Um, 1903, there's this thing called the Immigration Act, and it explicitly excludes anarchists. So if you want to come into the country, they'll ask you a question, political question, what are you? If you say you're an anarchist, you can't come into the country because they're really no. afraid of this. So, well, and why would the government allow you to come in when you don't believe in government? World War I comes along and everything turns. The anarchists kind of get quieted because the anarchists aren't fans of these imperial wars, so they're against World War I. And most people don't realize how like dangerous it was to oppose World War One. The guy that used to own our property in um, in San Diego, um, the great Isaac Frazee, he wrote against uh, wrote against World War One. Uh, but this was a dangerous thing. This was a dangerous thing. Now, um, I want to just mention one more boyfriend, Ben Reitman. Ben Reitman was this uh, kind of cowboy dude. Um, he was a physician uh, to the poor. Um, he was called King of the Hobos, and he, uh, in contrast with Sanger, performed abortions specifically for sex workers, for uh, people that had run away from abusive situations, uh, for poor people that had been coerced into sex, whatever. Um, he joins up with uh, Emma, and all of Emma's other suitors, all the other boyfriends, hate him because he's not smart. So he's like an actual anarchist living, like he's kind of like one of these cats living under like the bridge. He's like he's like the king of the bums, mm. right? And he goes with Emma down to San Diego and vigilantes in San Diego um, ambush them. They take him. They, um, 
they rape him with uh, like sticks and stuff. Wow. Um, they they damage his testicles. Like they just jack him up. And so he reunites with Emma and he is just shattered. He is just emotionally just messed up. And and later on, he's going to try to go back down to San Diego. I never realized San Diego was like this hell hellscape with all these kind of like white thugs (laughs) that weren't going to let this kind of thing. You'd you'd be in Portland. There'd be some anarchist flow as San Francisco, be some anarchist flow. You got some New York. They didn't want that down in San Diego. You know, and so mm-hmm. uh, Emma's quote, uh, quote, anarchism asserts the possibility of an organization without discipline, fear or punishment and without the pressure of poverty. Uh, San Diegans, uh, at least some of these didn't want that. And they especially didn't want it. It was the political side, but they didn't want the changing family structure. They didn't want the changing gender roles. Mm-hmm. Why is it all about gender? Why is everyone so crazy about like anti-trans, like like why are the why is the anti-trans almost genocidal stuff going on in society? Because gender is about control. Yeah. So if you want full spectrum emancipation, you've got to break free from the, these gender roles. You can do it if you want. This isn't saying if you want to be a mom, you can't be a mom. If you like working with cars, you can work with cars. If you're a dude, it's saying that the societal demand for you to stay in that gender lane is a dangerous symptom of quasi-fascistic nonsense, right? And so is, and this is to the old, you know, to the thing we talked about with uh, Emily Joy, purity culture is rape culture. Yes. Emma Goldman says this. I was shocked because I, 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 the word purity doesn't come up a lot until like the 90s in, in these, you know, kind of things. But Emma was talking about purity. She, she meets this dude, this like kind of religious dude who talks about his purity. He says, I am 40 and I have remained pure. And she responds, I would advise a medical examination. (laughs) Now, I also want to push back on that in this one way, because I don't think she fully understood something that that I don't think she could have necessarily. And I've heard this a lot from um, folks in the LGBT community that like, I think it's important to address here. I want to address it again in the future. A lot of times people want to like figure out their sexual orientation and they say to themselves, but like, I don't want to have sex with like other people. I don't necessarily want to have sex with other people. Mm-hmm. I just like, I'm uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. And therefore they're not going to like understand their own sexual identity right. because they think that it demands like, all right, if I'm, if I'm bisexual, do I have to have sex with somebody else? Right. Maybe I don't want to, maybe I'm very comfortable in my monogamous relationship. Right. Um, I don't think she understood the concept that, that is now like something that's only recently becoming a part of the conversation. And that is, what is it like to be asexual? Right. What is it like to be demisexual? Right. Those are things for another time. But so I don't want the listener, you dear listener to think, oh, well, that, that doesn't ring true. I remember when we, we had interviewed a celibate, uh, a, a celibate gay Lutheran on the show. It was great to talk with him. Um, but I remember some other uh, people that were openly gay saying, well, no, that's not possible. You can't be celibate and gay. Right. Um, the episode was called Stained Glass. Stained Glass. Uh, stained Glass Windows. Yeah. Stained Glass Rainbows. Rainbow Glass. <sighs> anyway. We'll link to I'll it. I'll link to it on the show, protectionnogging.org. My point is, I actually think that's sometimes unhelpful. I think it's, it's an important thing to think about, right? There's just like kind of statistically, whatever. But the idea that's like, 
I think sometimes uh, we've known we've had students say like, hey, you know, like I'm married I, I, or I'm in a very serious relationship with a heterosexual romantic relationship. I recognize that I'm bisexual. Um, and then some people will say, well, like you're just like you're not you're imperfect if you like if you don't like sexualize it. Like I think what we're after full spectrum emancipation is nobody gets to tell you how to express <laughs> what it is that you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Side issue. Um, <laughs> the end of the story is she gets deported. And she gets sent to Russia and she's okay with this because like Russia is going to have this revolution and she's so excited about it. She goes with Sasha, they get on a boat, they end up in Russia and everything's so great. Oh, it's so great because they're, they are overthrowing these bastards, the czarists, right? Mm -hmm. And then all the anarchists get thrown into prison and experience horrendous mistreatment, execution, deprivation, torture. They get sent to Siberia. She, this is an interesting thing about being a radical, okay? You don't make a lot of friends. No. Because when she comes back to her friends in the West, she says, the Russian Revolution is a disaster. It's bad. It's status. This is the whole problem. We talked about this with, like, you know, like, uh, anarchists and communists both want to end capitalism. Often people stick with capitalism because they don't want communism, Right. And I understand Emma, Emma Goldman understood. She said, oh, crap, this is terrible. Right. Like she is like now in Russia and she's like okay. more afraid in Russia than she was in America that she got kicked out of. You know? Right. Right. And um, or at least as afraid. And she ends up in exile. Uh, somebody gives her a place and they kind of just like marginalize her because nobody they, they won't let her in any country, really. And it's very hard for her to find a country to be in because like everybody's cool with leftists. You could be a socialist, but you can't be an anarchist. Mm-hmm. Everybody's everybody's nervous about that. Everybody's nervous about full spectrum emancipation. And that said, you know, she, she, I think one of my my favorite things about her is that she had every reason to be blind to the atrocities of the Stalin or of the, of the Leninists, the Marxist Leninists uh, in Soviet Russia. But she was the kind of person that I like, that I think is like the gold standard in many ways for full spectrum emancipation for protect your noggin. Like, when, when everybody's against you, mm-hmm. will you still stick to your guns? Will you be consistent? Or whereas a lot of her anarchist friends in Russia ended up just being servants of a horrific centralized state, uh, basically state capitalism now. Um, she lost her friends. It's really hard. But she didn't lose her integrity. When you lose your community. It's lonely. Yeah, to continue. So there you go. So the main thing is, friends, um, if you know, if you've been really, um, you know, emotionally harmed by like you know your choices in life by Christians and churches, or if you're well, one, kind of and, working through this, we're we're with you. Yeah, and one and one other side note, you know, you mentioned in the very beginning too, with and this is perhaps even something I don't know. There might be more here to speak to on a new show, uh, future show is. Our current state in America, I mean, it's it's not working, whatever is going on, in that if you look around you, like, I haven't, I haven't seen a culture that, I mean, I haven't seen so many people that are just so depressed, uh, struggling so much financially or, you know, with work stuff or whatever, mm. and... I noticed with my own um, experience that the mental health system is totally bogged down. They yeah. can't help 
um, everybody and the willingness to pass out antidepressants. Um, yeah. You know, not other things like, you know, I mean, obviously you want to make sure that people aren't falling into addiction and things like that. But by the time I could get some Xanax, my insurance ran out. I'm out of insurance right now. We'll get right. some. I was able to I was able to make one appointment through our insurance before right. you lost your insurance <laughs> for I mean, two appointments, technically, the first one was like just sort of all these intake questions. And then the second one was the first real, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, session I had. Uh, but I will say that, I, and I'm not dissing antidepressants. I mean, I've even had to go on them myself um, from t- time to time. And what I'm saying, though, is, is that if you look around you, yeah, look at your friends, look at your family, look at yourself. You're not doing great. There's so many people that need to be on antidepressants right now. And I say, take that medicine if you need it. The most appalling thing I've ever heard is Christians calling having babies evangelism. And Oh, I can't believe we didn't talk about that. That was the big thing. Yeah. But I mean, it's, a, it's up there. Well, it's definitely a Christian heresy. It's like, instead of making more Christians, let's are like, it's going to making, bringing Lutherans as like missional to like bring healing to the world. No, just make more, just of make them. more of them. <laughs> because it's so adjacent, it's so no, it's it's just so explicitly white nationalist. I mean, I've seen this. Like they 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 want like some of these trolls that I've engaged with and I'm kind of disengaging with. Um, the quiverful thing is always there, right alongside their white nationalism. And by the way, fascist friends, um, fuck you. Sorry, but no, really. Like I mean, like like I, like does does anybody get to say like like th- this is not okay? <laughs> <laughs> right, like, like, like it used to be. I used to say, like, I, I would say something that's like fascist or whatever, and I, and then they'd say, well, that's overuse of the word. Now people are saying, like, well, what's wrong with that? Like, what's wrong with being strong? With like, I, it, it, this is a dangerous is, time. And what's scary is, is if we no, seriously, fuck if you. we don't call that out, yeah, it will only get worse with more and more rights taken away. Yeah. And before you know it, you know, you're living in a whole different different society. You're living in a whole different world. America can be a completely different place. We, you know, we've talked to some dear people in other countries that have seen their countries change in their lifetimes from a place where they had freedom to no longer having freedom. That's what's going on in our country. I'm not going to get overwhelmed by it because I think this is what happens when people that have illegitimate power and privilege start to lose that, you know, just because you're white, and stupid, not because all white people are stupid, just because you're white and stupid but like grow, grew up in a rich family doesn't mean you get to just like kind of ride that one out. And, you, and maybe you can ride it out. I'm not going to stop you. But I am going to stop you from threatening the well-being of, of women, people of color, and LGBT people because you think you're going to control their bodies. Fuck you. Like, I'm serious. Like, like, like we used to, like, I, I, and that's not very doubt. It seems like it's not very doubt. I think that's what Jesus would say, you whitewashed sepulchers, right? If, if you're not, I mean, it, I want to know at least one thing you've done in the last decade to take care of single moms, people in, in shelters, people in the foster care system. If you could at least point to one, like, positive thing, then maybe, like, we'll talk. I still am not going to, like, give you a pass at your bullshit, right? But, like, if you're, if you're going to, like, be okay with sexual trauma for these young people and then the perpetual like of food scarcity and even homelessness of kids. If you don't care about that, if you don't care about families that are dying in the desert as they're walking across the border and you think that's not, a, not, not your problem and you're going to make people breed and have babies, like you really are like, we're on a different page. I don't just disagree with you. Like I, you, you are a threat 
to the well-being of humanity. <laughs> and you probably think you're right. I hope you think you're right. That would be weird if you didn't. But I, um, but I guess what I'm saying is I want your repentance. I want your healing. I want your love. I want to love. I would love you. I love you. I care. Like I want your well-being. But if you're going to start threatening other people, I'm at least in a position as like a, like whatever I am, right? Um, I've got not a lot to lose anymore. So when, so when the thing comes, when you start coming with guns, when you start wearing shirts that say, um, you know, uh, uh, kill your local pedophile, but what you really mean is all people that are advocates of acceptance and inclusion of LGBT people, because you're going to commit, you're, you're like basically advocating violence against uh, uh, LGBT people. If you're, if you're going right. to like make it illegal for a 10 year old to get an abortion, um, I mean, I we've got think, a problem. I would think if you truly are American, you should care about rights. Freedom and rights. And, and, and not your right to take away other people's rights. Cause right. that, that doesn't work that way. Right. And if you're, and if you're I've Catholic, I've heard that they've stopped, or at least in some areas, they stopped doing the Miranda rights when police are arresting yeah, yeah, people. Blah, blah, blah. And like, that's a whole nother thing. Like not informing people of even their rights. That's all about control. That's all about lack of information helps to control people. Yep. Well, <sighs> anyway, we're ready for a fight, but friends, we uh, don't want to fight, but sometimes you have to. Because, right? because what we're really after. What we're really after is deep peace upon peace. Uh, thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP and rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said that wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.